to whatever the cost may be. Lord, give us ears to hear, God, and be with Dr. Allen as he speaks your word. Fill him with your spirit and fill us with your truth. In your holy name, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, Evan. If you will find your place with me in whatever medium you happen to be following along in God's word, Mark chapter number one. Mark's gospel and chapter number one. I knew we were going to come to the end of preaching the seven signs in John's gospel the day I started. I mean, there were only seven. Preachers are always thinking and praying, God, what am I going to do when I get through with this? And I had been kind of planning to start the gospel of Mark and preach through it uh, for some time. And then I guess it was last Sunday evening, uh, Heather handed me her phone and there was a Facebook message on there. Uh, written to me, and it was from one of my former professors and mentors, Dr. Bill Cook, who is now the professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he said to Heather, would you please pass this along to Richie? Uh, we're involved in a project whereby we are trying to get some churches that we know and are acquainted with to join us and it is a project uh, centered around 40 days in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Dr. Cook has written a book, a little guide to help that, because they want to see the effects of, of getting folk in the Word uh, in a focused manner for an extended period of time, i.e. 40 days. And he wanted to know if we would be willing or available to do that, and I immediately responded back, and I said, Doc, we're... We're available and willing under one condition. And that condition is the next time you are in Florida, you come and preach at Grace Church. So, you know, you've got to use leverage where you can get it. Uh, if you do not know Dr. Bill Cook, you will just sit slack-jawed as you listen to this gifted uh, man teach God's Word. So uh, he told me that he would. So hopefully we have him backed in a corner now, him being a man of his word. Uh, he'll come and preach for us one day. But Dr. John has already ordered us uh, a good number of copies of the little booklet, 40 Days in Mark, and we'll be distributing those just as soon as we get them. We may distribute them through grace groups. We'll have some around here. But nonetheless, we're just going to get everybody on the same page in God's word for a little while and, and see what uh, the Lord says and what happens through that. So... Now, having said that, Mark's Gospel, chapter number 1. Uh, well, let's start this thing. What do you say? I don't know how long it'll take me. It's going to take me several months to preach through the Gospel of Mark, but here's the deal. God's Word is God's Word. You know, I, it really doesn't matter where you're preaching from. As long as you're preaching the book, it's going to hit us. So I'm looking forward to this journey through Mark's Gospel. Here we go. Let's look at the first part of this in Mark, chapter 1. I'm going to read through verse number 13. Mark... Uh, who was the vibrant young man that wrote this book. He kind of leaves his calling card at the end of the book. Do you remember when Jesus was being arrested in the garden and Peter was about to defend him and pulled out his sword and uh, all of that was going down? He records something that's real funny. He says there was a young man there who was frightened and on his way out he lost his cloak so he ran home naked. <laughs> So I guess here was the first instance of naked and afraid. Well, that was Mark. <laughs> he was naked and, and afraid, and he got out of there. Uh, Mark was the son of a prominent lady in Jerusalem, and 
the fledgling primitive church met at her house several times. As a matter of fact, when Peter was released by the angels from prison in Acts chapter 12, that's where he went. He went to Mark's mother's house. And then, you know, Mark also went on the first mission trip with, um, with, um, with Paul and, um, and Barnabas. Thank you. And um, he left them. He abandoned them. Paul didn't like that. And it became a source of contention and division between Paul and Barnabas over this young man, Mark. The good news is, toward the end of Paul's ministry, there was reconciliation. And he speaks highly of Mark and asked to bring Mark because Mark was profitable for him as he was in prison. So a rich history here with the man, Mark. But let's look at his gospel beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast. And the angels were ministering to him. One of the very first events that we hosted when I became pastor of First Baptist Church in Hilliard, Florida, many, many years ago, was a family revival. And I kind of inherited this event. It was on the church calendar when I got there. And the leader says, well... Tell us, Pastor, what do you want to do? You want to keep it or do you want to nix it? What do you want to do? I said, well, it's been planned for a while, and the guy that you guys uh, called and invited to do this had it on his calendar. Let's go ahead with it. So I did my research, got information about the guy, and understood a little bit about who he was and found out that he had a pretty good resume, had a pretty good name as a preacher. So I began to promote this thing and began to promote him, and I preached a four message series leading up to this family weekend revival. Really built this weekend up and really built this evangelist up. And this guy came and he got there and I'm telling you, he got in the pulpit and just absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, laid a big old egg. And I thought, my goodness gracious, well, maybe he was just having a bad day. Maybe things didn't go right for him this morning. Maybe tonight will be a little bit better. He not only laid an egg that night, but he laid four more eggs on us that week. 
to the extent that my people were coming up to me and saying, well, preacher, it's a good thing the appetizer that you gave us in preparation was good because there was no food on the table this weekend. And I learned a lesson then. I learned not to over-introduce people. See, they taught us, believe it or not, in seminary, one of the things that they taught us was how to give a proper introduction, how to introduce somebody. So I introduced this guy, but the problem is I introduced him way above his level to deliver. But now I want you to see what takes place in Mark's gospel. Because right here off the bat, Mark introduces Jesus Christ, and son, he sets a pretty high standard. Notice his introduction in verse number 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's a pretty high title to live up to. And Mark spends the rest of his gospel, the next 16 chapters, showing how Jesus lives up to the introduction that he gives in verse number 1. And boy, I want to tell you, there is no danger in over-introducing Jesus. You can't magnify him so big that he can't fill the shoes that you have put for him to stand in. There is no danger of him ever underliving the introduction. Now, notice how it is that this happens. Boy, there's a lot of stuff that takes place in these first verses of chapter number 1. And I want to speak to you on this subject today. Living up to the introduction. So how does Jesus live up to the introduction? And you can see that not just here in these few verses, but again throughout the entire gospel of Mark. Let me show you a few peculiarities about this and stick with this. Put this in the back of your mind and keep it with you as we not only preach through the gospel of Mark, but as we look at 40 days in Mark with Dr. Cook coming up soon. Mark is known as a fast-moving gospel. And here's the reason why. Two out of every three verses in the gospel of Mark start with the word and. For you Greek scholars, chi. I mean, it says Jesus did this and this and this and this and this and this. Notice with me, if you think I'm making it up, just check this out. Start with me and notice in about verse number 11, and, verse number 13, and, verse number 15, and, verse number 17, and. Do you see that? It's like Mark can't catch his breath quick enough to tell you everything that Jesus did in showing that he is living up to the introduction and that he is indeed the Son of God, God incarnate. Another word that's key in the Gospel of Mark, and I was trying to underline these words even as I was reading through it this morning, and I was reading faster than I can underline. But a key word in Mark's Gospel is the word immediately. Immediately. It's used over 40 times. Now check this out. I, I first started underlining it, but no, 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 no. It comes out several times. Your eye will find it. But my pen caught up to my mouth in about verse number 10. There it is, immediately. Look with me in verse number 12. There it is, immediately. And then look again in verse number 18, immediately. I mean, he's always and immediately. So he's moving fast. Mark is a fast-talking evangelist. He, know, he, he knows he only has a very short time and a very limited space to show how Jesus lived up to the title of Son of God and he is a machine gun on the run. So now, how is it that he lived up to it? Well, 
there's so many theological themes found here in these first few verses and I don't have the time that Mark had. My time is even more abbreviated so I had to go through and edit them. But let me give you some of these grand themes in verse number 1. We see that Jesus lives up to his title. Here's about five or six ways because Scripture foretold him. The greatest man who has ever been born among women introduced him. A voice from heaven confirmed him. The Spirit of God descended upon him. Satan tried to destroy him, and angels ministered to him. Now, boy, that's a theological mouthful, you hear me? And all of those themes we find right here in the first few verses of Mark chapter 1. There is also this idea, there's this, there's this subplot, this motif Mark's playing off of between creation and the exodus as opposed to new creation in Jesus Christ and the exodus that Jesus is going to lead for his people from the bondage of sin. So all of these things are going on in these first few verses. So how in the world are we going to deal with that in the next 30 minutes? We're going to try to do it like this. Here we go. Living up to the introduction. Number one, Jesus lives up to his introduction by how he is announced. By how he's announced. Now, I, I just had to do this for outline's sake. There's two ways I want to point out that he was announced. Number one, he was announced by prophetic foresight. Notice what it is that Mark does. Right off of the bat, rather than saying, take my word for it, he does what any good preacher ought to do, and he says, here's what the word says, and more specifically says about Jesus Christ and his arrival. And he goes all the way back to the prophets Malachi and Isaiah, and he says, here's what they said about him. You know, he's got to be pretty special to have the word of God foretell his arrival. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. So the first way he lives up to his introduction is he was foretold or, or, or Scripture uh, announced him by prophetic foresight through these great prophets. But here's where I want to spend my time today because not only was he announced by prophetic foresight, but he was announced by a powerful forerunner. A powerful forerunner. So Mark brings in this guy John the Baptist about whom the prophets wrote, saying that he's going to be so great until there's going to be a prophet come to make straight his path and to announce his arrival. And here was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a guy about whom Jesus said, there has not been a man born, among, born of women who is greater than John the Baptist. Son John was a great man, but get this, he was just the forerunner for the Son of God. John says about himself, I'm not worthy to reach down. And that was the, by the way, that was the job of a slave was to, un, was to take the sandals off of guests' feet and to wash their feet. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. Reminds me of the time that Billy Graham arrived into a city and there was a limousine at the airport waiting to pick him up. And the limousine was going to take him to his, speech, to his speaking appointment. And the young guy that was driving the limousine was talking to, to, to uh, Dr. Graham because he was always a personal type of guy. And in the midst of a conversation, Dr. Graham says, You know, I've always wanted to drive one of these things. I've, never, I've been in them a few times, but I've never driven one. 
And so the young chauffeur says, well, would you like to drive? He said, I'd love to. So Billy Graham gets out of the back seat and goes and starts driving. The young man gets in the back seat. And uh, they going down the interstate, and Dr. Graham's enjoying driving that limousine so well he wasn't paying attention to the speed, and lo and behold, the state trooper pulls him over. <laughs> state trooper walks up to the, to the limousine window. You know, they're all dark and then, so he taps on the window, lowers it down, and there's Billy Graham driving the limousine. <laughs> state trooper's taken back, so he goes back to his car, and he calls his supervisor and says, You're not going to believe this. He said, I just pulled over a limousine, and Billy Graham is driving it. His supervisor says, what? Billy Graham driving? He said, well, who's in the back seat? He said, I'm afraid luck. So <laughs> <laughs> on a Billy Graham chauffeur, who's in the back? You know, it must have been the Lord himself. And that's the way it was with John the Baptist. I mean, my goodness, if you got a guy like this announcing, you can imagine how good the arrival must be. And it's in keeping with that ancient oriental custom before a king would enter into a place there was a forerunner that went before him to make sure all the potholes were taken out of the roads so his chariot wouldn't be bumpy, so his chariot ride would be smooth. There was all types of preparation made and advancement for him before, this, uh, before he would arrive. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Son of God. And you say, well, so what, Pastor? Well, let me show you something about this man, John the Baptist. What was so special about him being the forerunner? Well, notice John the Baptist. Man, what a preacher and what a man he was. I don't think we fully appreciate the significance of him being the guy who introduces the Son of God. What a preacher he was. Now, why was John such a potent and powerful preacher. Did you check it out? In, that, in, that, in those verses, the, the Bible says that all Jerusalem and all Judea was going out to him. Son, he was attracting a pretty good crowd, you say. Some estimate as many as 300,000 people were going to listen to the forerunner of Jesus Christ preach in the desert. So notice what it is that we glean from this passage about this powerful preacher named John the Baptist. Number one, I think we can say that John was powerful because he preached with a consistent character. With a consistent character. Verse number six tells us how he was clothed, what he wore. Tells us a little bit about what he ate. John the Baptist, the Bible tells us, was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Probably the only time in history that's ever happened and ever will happen because he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. But son, I want to tell you, this guy didn't just preach a message. This guy lived the message he preached. One of the ancient theologians says, what is preaching? Is it the art of making a, a, a sermon and delivering that? He said, absolutely not. Preaching is the making of a man and delivering that. And you see, John the Baptist didn't preach one thing and live something else. John the Baptist was so committed to the message, so committed to God, until he said, I'm not even going to go into town to buy the hippest clothes of the day. I'm not even going to eat 
at the most fancy delicatessens in Jerusalem. I'd rather stay out here, stay pure, stay focused, and preach God's Word out of a pure character than anything else. I get the impression today that the only thing you need to be a popular preacher in our day and age is a pair of skinny jeans and a spiked haircut. Come on. Whatever happened to men of God who didn't just preach sermons, but they themselves were sermons because God had made the man. You see, there is something to the connection between the message and the man. I know some of our philosopher friends says, oh no, that's a logical fallacy. But in spiritual work, it is not. You can't preach one thing and live another way. It doesn't float and fly to say, don't do what I do, do what I say. No, God just gives authority and preaching to those guys who have allowed God not just to put a sermon in their mouth, but put the gospel of Jesus Christ in their character and stamped on their heart. Can I say to you that I'm just now starting to learn this? Because the first 15 years of my preaching ministry, I was consumed with formulating a message. Can I say to you, after walking with God for about 30 years, I don't get my messages anymore from a commentary. You know what I'm saying? It comes out of a life lived with God. In the valley, on the mountain, and anywhere in between. God's Word just seems to blossom before your eyes the more you walk with Him. And so many... Of, of, of these young preachers that I preach think it's just about being homiletically correct and it's not. It's being holy and living a life that's reflective of the gospel and then the Spirit of God just makes the Word of God come to life through your personality. And look, it doesn't have to be an old holier-than-thou personality. Dear God, I'm a farmer. That's why you get farmer gospel on Sunday mornings. Huh? I mean, it just comes through me that way. That's why I talk about people being mule-lipped sometimes. <laughs> just the way it comes, through my farming background and personality. You don't have to live in a monastery somewhere in order to be holy. You just have to walk with the one who is. That's all you got to do. Notice, and Lord have mercy, I certainly am not, but let me point out to you, somebody came up to me this morning and said, after John Wilson taught Sunday school and said, you can tell that man lives and believes what he preaches. Huh? I sat back there talking with Sarah, his wife, right after it was over with. She said, you know, I walked in on him in the living room late one night this week, sprawled out on the floor praying, asking God to help him with this message. She said, I knew that was a holy moment between him and God and just backed out. God, give us more of that in our pulpits in the United States of America. John the Baptist was a powerful preacher because he preached with a consistent character. John also preached with passionate conviction. Passionate conviction. Notice what, the, notice what it was about, uh, about this prophecy about John being the forerunner for the Messiah. 
I, I love what it says. It says, He is the voice of one, underline this word, crying in the wilderness. When the Pharisees sent their little henchmen out to ask who he was because he was so powerful, people actually thought he was the Messiah. And they sent him out there and John says, Oh no, I'm not him. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And that word brings to us all of the emotion that comes with preaching the gospel and all of the passion that God puts into your heart and life when you have gotten a hold of spiritual truth. Folk always tell me, Pastor Richie, you'd be a good preacher if you just calmed down a little bit. They say, Pastor Richie, if you just wouldn't talk so loud, can I say to you that John the Baptist cried. I always say when God puts something in your heart, lift up your voice and let the world know. Huh? I mean, my goodness, you know, I've said it before. The two people in the world that you can't trust, number one, is a skinny cook. <laughs> and number two is a soft-spoken preacher. Bless their hearts. If you got something to say, say it. I'm reminded of George Whitfield. He used to preach in open-air revival meetings to as many as 70 and 80,000 people. And there didn't nobody say, Why do you say I can't hear him. You got something to say, say it. So here he was. He was preaching with passion. He preached with conviction. Why? Because he believed what he was saying. You ever sat under somebody and you felt like, hmm, I'm not even sure he believes that. Huh? I'm reminded of, again, George Whitfield, one of the atheist philosophers of his day, went out to hear him preach. He taught at one of the famous universities in England. And somebody saw this philosopher there and went and asked him, said, Dr. Sartre, what are you doing here? You don't believe this. And he said, no, I don't, but he does. You know, there's something to be said about listening to somebody who believes what it is they're preaching. And old John the Baptist believed it. Number next, not only did he preach with passionate conviction, but he preached with uncommon courage. Uncommon courage. I mean, think of the courage that John had to tell King Herod, Sir, you're living in sin because you have your brother's wife. You understand, a pantyways wouldn't do that. Somebody who's trying to be politically correct wouldn't do that. John had courage and he called out sin where it needed to be called out. He told the, he told the, 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 the tax collectors, he said, don't take any more than what's required. He told the the, the, the people in Jerusalem, if you have two coats and somebody has none, give one that you have to somebody that has none. He told the Pharisees when they came out to where he was preaching, and the, boy, here's, boy, hey, hey, listen, <laughs> listen. <laughs> now, John, how would you like to train our guest, what do we call him, our connect team? Our connect team, here was John. The Pharisees came out where he was preaching in the, in the desert. Before he even preached, he goes up to him and says, you brood of vipers. <laughs> Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? So connect team. They well stand at the door and do that, huh? <laughs> Somebody comes in. What are you doing here? <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> but John did, and probably rightfully so to those old Pharisees. John preached with courage. Can I just say to you that courage inspires courage? 
You ever been around somebody who was fearless? Kind of makes you a little more fearless, doesn't it? And that's what happened with John. God give us men in the pulpits of the United States of America that have courage. Notice, number next, not only did John's preaching preach with uncommon courage, but John's preaching had strong content. Strong content. Now let me say, let me just preface everything I just said with this. Because there's a lot of folk that think preaching is just shouting and spitting on the people in the front row and walking on the bottom of your britches legs. <laughs> That's not preaching. Preaching is not determined by the volume. But get this, it's not determined by the length of the message. God get us to the point where we can judge a message on the basis of its theological content rather than the minutes consumed in the process. Huh? Preaching is defined by its content. And notice what content John had in his message. Check this out. Look at the content. Woo! Here's something to inform our preaching. Look who he preached about in verse 7. Verse 7 says, And he was preaching. There is a present participle. I mean continually. This was his message continually. After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you the Holy Spirit. Son, that's pretty good content, is it not? His content was Jesus Christ. And boy, I don't know of any better content. As a matter of fact, notice how he describes it in, in verse number 1. Here's the creation of tones in the beginning. But look what he says. In the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that word gospel, euangelion, just simply means good news. Good news. Good news of Jesus Christ, genitive of identity, good news, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is good news. Stop and think about it. Under what circumstances could Jesus not be good news to somebody? I'll tell you how. He's not good news to those who love darkness more than light. Huh? That's the only circumstance under which he's not good news. I mean, have you ever noticed how some folk come to church and... and that's all they ever did is come one time? Because the good news of Jesus Christ is not good news if you're living in darkness. And if you're more committed to darkness than you are light, then it's not good news. But notice, John Mark says here, the good news of Jesus Christ. And son, can I say that's pretty good content? And I just want you to know, I am committed to preaching good news. That's why when you come to church on Sunday, you're not going to get poetry. You're not going to get politics. You're not going to get problems. You're going to get the one who is the solution to all of those. And that is Jesus Christ, the good news. Doesn't matter what your situation, doesn't matter what ails you, Jesus Christ is good news. He is the solution. Why in the world would preachers want to preach about anything less 
than the theological content of the good news of Jesus Christ. Check this out. Not only was John preaching, that not only did his preaching have strong content, but John preached, get this, in a harsh climate. Watch this. The word wilderness is used three times here. It's pretty much a theme in these, in these verses. John was preaching in the wilderness slash, also translated, desert. Desert, desert, desert. You know what that means? It means a couple of things. Number one, it means that it was hard to reach. To get to John, you didn't just happen to pass by there on your way to work or on your way to the country buffet that afternoon. You had to make a concerted effort to get to where John the Baptist was preaching. Uh, most scholars estimate that where John was from Jerusalem was about 70 miles, and get this, of harsh climate. The only thing I've seen close to it is in Brazil, the way people will walk sometimes 25 kilometers to get to where the Word is. But these folk were walking, they were filing out all Jerusalem and all Judea 70 miles in harsh climate. Now can I say to you, that speaks to the message and to the man of John the Baptist. Because today we've got to have everything just right to get people to walk across the street to go to a Bible-believing church. And man, I'm so sick of hearing church growth experts say that church planning today consists most importantly in one key element. That is location, location, location. And I'm here to tell you that's a bunch of hogwash. The number one element in church planning today is not location, 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 but proclamation, proclamation, proclamation of the Word of God by a man of God and people will walk out into the desert to get to where the food's being served. Man, if we had some preachers dispensing the eternal truth of God's Word, we wouldn't have such a bunch of weenie, whiny believers saying, Well, I guess it wasn't raining. <laughs> you know, I sympathize with it a little bit. When Heather and I were missionaries, we, we about starved to death trying to find somebody who was preaching God's Word. And there was a lot of times I'd get up and go outside if it wasn't right. Just a heavy fog, that was enough reason for me not to go to church. Huh? Because <laughs> any excuse to do when you don't want to go. But I'm telling you, if the word's being preached, don't tell me they won't come. They flocked out into the desert, walking to hear the word of God through the man of God who was preaching out there. But watch this. Not only him being in the desert, not only was it hard to reach, but it was very easy to relate. Very easy to relate. Again, we see this wilderness theme. And I've told you that creation exodus is in there. And here's how it all comes. This is the theological message and what, what God was communicating to his people by the place where John the Baptist was preaching. It was in the wilderness, in the desert. Hey, what was it that preceded the children of God entering into the promised land? Huh? Say it. It's not a trick question. The wilderness. It was the desert. So you see what God is saying here theologically, y'all are in the desert, but the oasis is coming. And the oasis 
was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's how it's easy to relate, guys. Here's the principle. You see, desert spiritually always precedes the promised land. So if you're in a dry and thirsty place today spiritually, if you're in a tough environment, difficult circumstances, I'm telling to you, hang on. Because all that desert is is the runway to launch you into the promised land. A dry and thirsty land always comes before the oasis. So do not think it strange, this fiery trial, which is to try you. You hang in there. The promised land's coming. You see, the desert always precedes the oasis. Darkness always precedes light. Hunger always precedes filling. Here's the dealio. Man, I've had enough preaching to folk who, who are not hungry. Because let me tell you what they'll do. You can take the message that God has been preparing in the man for 30 years. Oh, get me. Preaching is not just something, and you know the big joke in Baptist circles is, well, you only work on Sunday and Wednesday. No, 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 no. You never get out of preaching mode when God's called you to preach. No matter what you're doing, your head and your heart's in the book. God molding you. And here's what I tell churches. There are several times I've been able to preach in transitional settings and interim settings before a pastor comes and I always try to prepare the church for the pastor and here's the reality do you know that the pastor loved you even before he knew you because he's been preparing his life for this moment for you ever since God saved him ever since God called him yea verily ever since he was born hey the message that I'm delivering today I didn't whip it up last night God started this about 40 years ago. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more exhausting than knowing that you were pouring 40 years of spiritual truth that God's prepared into your heart for people who would just sit there and turn their nose up and say, well, maybe next week. That's exhausting. That's demoralizing. It's debilitating. Good God, would you send people? It doesn't matter how far they have to come from. They have to come from Dothan, Alabama, from Andalusia, from the Funiac Springs, from Tallahassee. God, would you just send people to be a part of a church that's dedicated to disseminating the Word of God and preaching the good content of Jesus Christ. Notice, man, he was in a harsh climate and yet he grew a church. Woo! Don't tell me God can't grow a church in Bonifay, Florida. Some of my more scholarly and socially elite pastor friends look down their nose when they say, you're preaching where? <laughs> I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world because they preaching to about 1,500 folk this morning that's going to get up off of them padded pews off of their air con out of their air-conditioned environment walk past the bowling alley and the Family Life Center, get in their car and go home and they ain't going to think about it until they come back next Sunday. Enough of that. Check it out. i got to run before I use up all my time. Here we go. 
Jesus lives up to his introduction by how he was announced. Son, he had a preacher announce his arrival. Number two, Jesus lives up to his introduction by how he was approved. By how he was approved. Check this out. How was he approved? Well, he was approved, number one, by a voice from heaven. Look with me in verses 9 and 10. Or verse number 10, immediately, there's, there's John's word, or Mark's word, excuse me. It's going to take me a while, y'all know, to transition my slow brain from John's gospel to Mark's, but I'll get there eventually. So if I say John, just insert Mark. Notice here's Mark's word immediately, coming up out of the water. He, who is that? That's Jesus, saw the heavens opening. Get this. It's the very same word used in the gospel to describe what happened to the veil in the temple when Jesus died on the cross. It was ripped. And son, could John, could Mark be saying it was something like a rip that took place in the space-time continuum that allowed heaven to invade this world momentarily? And you know, here's the reality. Sometimes we think of heaven as being so far off so far out there. I mean, it's on the other side of Jupiter and Pluto. When you get to Saturn, take a left turn and go right. And That's not where heaven is. The gospel writer spoke of heaven and Jesus manifesting himself as though he could step from one realm into the other. And here's an example of that. Something being ripped open. Hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said. When I die... Thank God I don't have to put a space suit on and go on the other side of whatever galaxy heaven may reside. No, sir, I think it's a whole lot closer. I think it just rips open and you just step right into it. Woof, and he just zips back up behind you. There you go. Notice what it is that this voice said. Immediately coming up out of the heavens, he saw, or, or out of the water, he saw the heavens ripped open. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now get me, I wish I had time, but I don't. Thank the good God of heaven for grace groups. Because we'll unpack some of this theologically in grace group. What, what, what in the world was going on here? Well, Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. Here on the very brink of embarking upon his ministry, saying, we're committed to this cross thing. All this confirmation comes. This voice from heaven, the Spirit descending and lighting upon him. Notice what else. He was approved by a voice from heaven, but he was also approved by a visitor from hell. Check it out. John uses his word again, verse number 12. He says, immediately, immediately, the Spirit, the Spirit who just enveloped him and rest upon him. What's the first thing the Spirit did? The Spirit, Mark translates it as impaled. It means it forced him. Forced, the Spirit forced him into the wilderness, into the desert temptation experience. Now watch me. Not everything that applies to Jesus Christ applies to you and I. Because Jesus taught us, pray, Lead me not into temptation. God doesn't lead us into temptation. But get this, the Spirit of God had to force the Son of God because He would have never went there. Had to force Him out into the wilderness in order that He could be approved. And notice who He was approved by. 
He was approved, number one, by the voice from heaven, but number two, he was approved by a visitor from hell. Can I say to you, the Spirit doesn't have to drive you out there and me out there. We just find our own way out there, don't we? I mean, it's in my GPS. <laughs> I know how to get to hell from anywhere. <laughs> it just follows me around. I can find it. You know what I'm saying? The Spirit don't have to lead me out there, but Jesus, it did. We're talking about somebody living up to his introduction who's a little bit higher, holier and mightier. He's the Son of God. So the Spirit drove him out there. But can I say to you, the principle still remains the same. When the devil gets upon you this week, you know what he's just... You know, what he, you know what he could do? He could literally just approve the work of God in your life. Get this, every time, every time you stumble into temptation and you are victorious, all you did was prove to the devil, the world, and the flesh that, yeah, this Jesus thing's real. He's mighty enough to even overcome you and your influence in my life, Scratch. Try as you want. I'm his. Check it out. Drove him out into the wilderness. Now, think about, there's some hints in this wilderness, and I, I'm, I fully believe if Jesus had not experienced any more temptation in life, which he did, he would have had successfully defeated everything that you and I deal with in our flesh in this earth. Completely. Drove you out in the wilderness, and here's why I say that. Because number one, approval, you know how difficult it is to gain approval when you're without food? I mean, I hate to admit it, but we are more like those folk that Paul described who said their God is their belly then we want to admit. Son, you don't believe it? Let's hang out here till about 1 o'clock and see what your belly does. Your belly will be knocking on the door of your throat from within saying, Hey, <laughs> have you forgotten what time it is? Send something down. You know what I mean? We've even made jokes about it. When you get hungry and you get angry, you are what? You are hangry. Take a little food away from somebody and see how easy it is to fall into temptation. You know what I'm talking about? I, Eve must have been hungry because that apple looked mighty good <laughs> or whatever the fruit from the tree was. You take food away and people get hangry. And here Jesus was 40 days without food. The devil even tempted him, according to Matthew's gospel. Hey, if you are the Son of God, speak to these stones. Turn them into bread. Wow, 40 days without food, yet without sin. Check the approval box. Number two, notice what else. Approval is difficult when you're in a fearful place. Look at this, and look, look what Mark said. Mark adds this, and he says, And he was with the wild beast. He was with the wild beast. Boy, not a, the Bible speaks of the devil, I mean the desert being the, the abode of demons. Wild beasts live out there. Have you ever been in the pitch black woods at night? I'll never forget coon hunting and my light went out. 
Son, everything in the woods wants to eat you when you're out there and your light's out. You know what I'm saying? Everything is after you. And I was in the woods one night and my light was out. And I don't know if you've ever heard a wildcat scream one time. But son, the chill bumps on your back have chill bumps. And all you want to do is beat feet, but you can't because you don't know what you're running in. It's a, it's a, it's a, I'm telling you, it's a fearful thing. To be with the wild beast. I don't pass that test too good. <laughs> and Jesus was in the wilderness with the wild beast. Notice what else. He was approved, even in a fearful place. You know what that tells us? Son, he was in control not only of his physical anatomy, his belly, but he was in control of his emotions perfectly. Notice what else. Approval is difficult when you're without fellowship. Did you pick up on this? He was out there by himself. And we're such weenies, we can't even handle pandemic isolation. He was out there in the wilderness by himself. Maybe the greatest test of all. You know why? Because God has created us as social beings to live in community. That's the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ. And do you know when you're most prone to fall to temptation? It's when you are by yourself. Nobody else is looking. And here you are. You're by yourself. You're fearful and you're hangry. What, what worse odds could we have than being by ourselves? And do you understand? Here is the strategy of the devil today. He wants to take God's people cut them out of the herd through whatever phony line he can come up with, isolate them, get them by themselves, and he'll eat you up every time. You don't have a chance of being approved by yourself. Hence, the community of the church. Hence, the fellowship of grace groups. Hence the camaraderie of having someone who's got your back, who stands side by side. The Son of God, He won in the harshest of conditions. Remember the creation motif? Let's go back to that. Adam was in a perfect environment and lost. Here the Son of God, the second Adam, is in the worst possible conditions and He wins. Now, I didn't have room to write this, but I want you to write this down because there's a spiritual principle here that I want to close with. You can just mark it down. And a spiritual principle is a formula that is most always the way it happens. It happened this way in Jesus' life, and it'll happen this way in your life. All right, here you go. The first word I want you to write down is the word commitment. Commitment. You see, that's what baptism symbolized. Baptism was the Son of God committing himself to the will of God and saying that this cross thing, we're in it 110%. Father, we're good to go. 
You go ahead and commit yourself to God's will. You go ahead and commit yourself to being faithful, not just to Him, but being faithful to His Word, being faithful to His church. You commit yourself to, to, to being faithful, and here's the next element that comes along. You see commitment, we see that in His baptism. He's committed. The next element that always comes right on the heels of your commitment, the spiritual commitment that you make, is always confrontation. You make a commitment today, and you probably won't get to the house before that commitment is tried. Before there's some type of confrontation that tries to knock you off of the commitment that you just made. That's the way it always happens. Why is it that when folk make a commitment to be a part, not just join, but be a part of the mission and ministry and fellowship of Grace Church, the, 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 the most difficult Sunday to be back is going to be the next one. Because you're going to experience confrontation from hell as soon as you make a commitment. I want you to know that. You see, this is not prosperity gospel where you just make a commitment and nothing bad comes your way. No, no. You're going to be confronted. Commitment always brings confrontation. And that's what that wilderness experience was about. He was committed. Made a commitment. Now let's go and have that commitment tested a little bit. Oh, he gained approval through it. We can too. But too many times, confrontation knocks us off of our commitment. Now check this out. The, the, the principle is not done. Number one, you make a commitment. Number two, confrontation is going to come. But number three, watch this. When you are approved when you have successfully navigated the confrontation, when you didn't give up, confirmation always follows. And you know why maybe it is that so many of us think that this Christianity thing is really nothing divine, supernatural to it? Because watch me. You really don't get to the supernatural part if you get to step three. Oh, you can make, you can make a commitment just out of emotion today. You make a commitment and confrontation is going to come. You don't get to the supernatural part until you've withstood the confrontation and confirmation falls in your lap. And it always does. What was the confirmation for Jesus? Check this out. After 40 days being tested by the devil, 40 days without food, 40 days with the wild beast howling, notice what Mark tells us. And the angels... We're ministering to him. I'm telling you, you've made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. That commitment is going to be tested through confirmation. Don't sell yourself short. You hang in there at all costs because confirmation is coming. I don't know how it's going to come, but God has the ability somehow or another to supernaturally get it, get it to you and every time your commitment is tested, and every time confirmation comes, you get a little bit stronger in the faith. You become a little bit more like John the Baptist. And people start wanting to hear, what in the name of humanity has happened to you, Dane? What is going on in your life? I need to hear what's happening, because you are the real deal. Hey, what's God said to you today? Is today the day of commitment? If it is, man, don't put it off. 
today might be the day that God's calling you from loneliness to fellowship. It might be the day that the desert is going to pass away and the oasis is going to burst upon the horizon. It may be the day that darkness is dispelled and light fills your world. But it all starts with your response and your step of faith. In Jesus' name, if he said something, won't you be obedient? Stand with me, please. Father, thank you for your word. God, there's not one of us in this room that's not convicted when we hear about John the Baptist. And if John the Baptist wasn't enough to cause us to take a spiritual evaluation when we see the one whom he proclaimed causes us to want to sit in a pile of ashes, throw dust upon our head and realize how unworthy we are. But God, I thank you that the light has come, that the cure has been made available. And when the cure of Jesus Christ is supplied to sin-sick souls, darkness always leaves, desert blooms, weak people become strong, sinful people become pure and holy. God, my prayers, that's where you're going to find us at Grace Church. I pray you're going to find us somewhere on the good side of that formula from commitment to confrontation to confirmation. Lord, I know that there's folk here today in all three stages of that. There's some folk here today that need to make a commitment. There are others that are being confronted over commitment that they have made. and Yet, God, there's some today that are looking for confirmation. So, God, would you do what only you can do? Draw us to yourself. I pray for that one here that's never been born again. God, may this be the day they place their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray for those who have realized today that living apart from the church is not where God intends them to be. Today, that still small voice has spoken to them about being in fellowship with your people here at Grace Church. Whatever it is that you've said, God, may we move to you in faith all over this building. Evan singing. We're worshiping and we're being obedient in Jesus' name.